It's show 161 of the Rim Pro Report today, Mark Rocco of BMS Cat. Uh, this show is sponsored by our good friends at O'Neill Software. If you run a record center, you know that the barcode is the key to knowing what is what and what is where. But the fact is, managing and printing barcodes can be a huge pain. I know it was for me in my record center. You might be surprised to learn that O'Neill is also in the barcode business and they generate over 15 million barcode labels per year for their clients in order to save them time, hassle, and headache. If that intrigues you, you can learn more about this cool service at O'NeillSoft.com. So I was thinking, you know, I should I should inform you that worrying actually works because what I've discovered is 90% of the things you worry about never actually happen. So worry on. Welcome to the RIM Pro Report. The one and only weekly broadcast for the RIM support services industry. Bustling with news, views, and the latest updates. This show is full of interesting information. So take notes. Now here's your host, Tom Adams. Yep, it's me. And so here's the deal. I'm in Amsterdam today with Becky. We've just finished attending and participating in the European Records and Information Management Conference here in this amazing city. I'll be sure to get you caught up on all the cool things I learned and experienced and the conversations I had here at the conference this week, but not easy to do that out of the studio. So today I'm actually just going to share an interview I recorded just before I left to come on this trip here. And uh, I'm going to be actually talking to Mark Rocco, the president, the vice president of Document Recovery Services with BMS Cat and the Blackman Mooring Companies. I think this show is going to be very valuable and helpful to you. Normally at this time, I'd share with you the latest industry news, but because of being here in Amsterdam, I don't have access to all my news feeds. So we're actually going to forgo the industry news and jump right into my interview with Mark. So let's do that, shall we? Hold tight while I queue up the replay. Mark Rocco is Vice President of Document Recovery Services with BMS Cat and Blackman Mooring Companies. I'm delighted to have him on the program today. Mark, are you there? I'm there, Tom. Hey, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's really good to have you on the show. I'm I've you know, I've known about your company for years. I, I don't think you and I have, if we've met, I don't recall ever that uh, connection, but I know I'm, I've known enough about BMS Cat and I really wanted to spend some time talking to you today about your company, what you do, because actually just a couple of weeks ago, I saw on a Prism listserv some back and forth about, about disaster and some of the things that, um, you know, clients sometimes deal with in this industry, and I, I thought it'd be really great to talk to you. So, welcome. I'm I'm glad to have you here. Um, let Let's start with BMS Cat, uh, and I know that means more than that. So, uh, give me an overview of the company, the services you offer within the the confines of the the companies you operate in. Okay, I'm glad to be here. By the way, Tom, uh, our company is a family-owned business, been in business over 40 years. We're a, a, just a national and international disaster uh, response company. So we respond to things like building emergencies due to fires, floods, uh, hurricanes, terrorism. Uh, our core customers are hospitals, hotels, financial institutions, record storage companies, the federal government, uh, you know, et cetera. Our goal is to get clients back in business as fast as possible. A major subsection of that industry is has grown into its own vertical market, and that's the document and special media 
recovery services that we offer, you know, to the rim uh, service companies. Right. So there we freeze dry documents, clean moldy papers, restore microfilm, movie film, uh, LTO tapes, etc. So, and is that BMS Cat specifically? Uh, yeah, Buckman Mooring name is a local business, like in the southwestern part of the U.S., but they're primarily uh, serving uh, and supporting those communities. But most people know that BMS Cat is the national and international company that does the uh, larger. Uh, projects. Got it. Okay. Okay. So uh, you specifically, though, as I just introduced you, uh, run the document recovery services. So tell me a little bit more about that role and what it entails and, and some of the stuff maybe you deal with on a regular basis. Yeah, in that role, I, I'm the point person for our company um, to the record storage industry. So I'm primarily developing key accounts, supporting our accounts, uh, uh, supporting our people in the field that I can't manage every single job, so I provide them educational support, write the technical standards, and, you know, make sure that we're providing consistent uh, recovery uh, services no matter who does the work or where it occurs. Right. Okay. So tell me how you got into this role in business. I know, I know you've been at it a while, but I, I was looking on your LinkedIn page and I noticed you're, you, you've got your, I think, a Bachelor of Science in Business and you, you grew up in Chicago, it sounds like, or you're, that's where you did your university. Tell me a little bit about your story that leads you to eventually become you know, a document recovery expert in the world. Well, since I was a small child, I always wanted to grow up and be a document recovery person. <laughs> I mean, I just... <laughs> I sense that. There's so many yeah. of us who... They, I mean, that was a big yeah. calling for many of us, wasn't it? Yeah. Just like we all did when we were young, we're doing exactly what we wanted to do when we were right. young. But right. my, my background was varied from manufacturing companies, middle management, sales, sales management, etc. And I got involved in indoor air quality and construction for a while, and... That kind of led me into the disaster response industry, and and my key attributes that kind of led me in that area was having such a diverse work experience allowed me to work well with all levels of management, from CEOs down to facilities managers to operations managers, hmm. to understand what's important to them, and then to be able to adapt, you know, services and uh, so forth uh, that they can um, uh, that they would need. Right. So, so that that leads you to eventually what getting a job at at BMS or at Blackman Mooring. How how did that all transpire? Oh, um, that was really involved in doing like the indoor air quality reconstruction on the on the uh, uh, moldy home type of issue. So that that then related to wet homes from flooding and small disasters. And hmm. the more I started doing small and bigger disasters started realizing that that's an industry into itself. So right. then it became, you know, commercial shopping centers, high-rise buildings, entire cities, and airplane crashes, and so forth. And, you know, the common element is, you know, disasters. A disaster is anybody's emergency when they're involved in it. Right. <laughs> it's not always, you know, it's a disaster to them. And the common elements is that people aren't prepared for it. They don't know how to respond uh, the organization isn't prepared for it, so you try to bring to them focus and insight, not just for your skill set or tasks that you're providing, but just for disaster management right. to help them get organized and get focused and set their priorities. And then as they get focused, we, we resort back to our own skill set and just do what we're doing. But 
probably 50% of the disasters we get involved in, we're really helping the clients get organized, hmm. helping them get focused. Uh, many of their team members haven't been through it before and aren't really suitable for, for disasters. They may have been good for the planning portion, but not necessarily when the disaster itself occurs. They just don't have the skill set, temperament, decision-making ability, et cetera. So we kind of help our clients uh, you know, get their teams together and uh, move forward. So does your stress level ever rise, or are you just so used to dealing with disaster that you can walk into any situation and you just breathe normally? No, we, we get the same stress level, you? You know, if not more. Wow. It's just how you manage the stress. Right. You right. Know, cause, cause stress is always you know, a, a result of having many, many, many um, forces in front of you that you have to deal with, and you're not sure if you have all the resources. Hmm. The confidence comes from having been through it before. So you still react to it. Yeah. Uh, you, you still have the stress, but it's how you manage the stress, hmm. not only at the time, but over a period of time. Uh, so you, you work on you know good you know living habits to uh, uh, try to manage that stress, so you become an effective leader and decision maker at, at times when uh, you needed the most. Well, I, I could do a whole show with you on that right there, because uh, that that to me is secret of leadership, and and there's so much there's so much uh, stuff we could dig into that one. But I I, I want to talk about your disaster recovery stuff too. So let's jump back into that because I love that other topic, and I'll get you on another show to do that other topic because that's even better, I think. But, I look forward to it. I've actually talked about that one, you know, with the federal government to different areas on, you know, mass fatality incidents, you know, how to manage those and, mm. and so forth. Yeah. So in the document recovery part of this, this business, which you're the, uh, obviously the leader of at, at BMS, um, Tell me about your unique specialty in that, because I, I think despite the fact that we've heard it and, you know, over over time at conferences, uh, you know, Steve Richards from Nashville has talked about his fire in the water and and responding right. to that. And there's there's just these little snippets of what actually do you guys do? So as it relates to documents um, and maybe even things like film that you talked about, how, right. how, what's your your specialty, your t technology? How do you do this at your company? Uh, there's two, actually, you, you bring it up uh, to two. There's two areas. One's your paper, and one's going to be your film media type. So in your paper area, uh, that's uh, what our specialty is. We have the world's largest and the most technically advanced freeze-drying chambers in the world. Hmm. We just commissioned our seventh generation recently by changing all the software and programming to you know, monitor more, better, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, so that gets a good quality free, you know, freeze-dried paper coming out of it. Uh, and what people have to ask themselves is, what's my alternative if I don't do that? And that's basically uh, dehumidification of paper through different machines, but you're drying it by air, basically. The disadvantage of that is paper swells by 25%, and it loses strength by you know 30 or even 40%, meaning you need 25% more store space. They're fat and wrinkled, and they tear very easy. So, you know, it's just there is a difference. So freeze-drying a paper is what the National Archives, Library of Congress, et cetera, recommends. The other portion is our film media, meaning x-rays, microfilm, movie film, microfiche, et cetera. All of them are made with a, a polyester-based material, and then they put an emulsion layer on the top, and that's where your films are, your data, et cetera. And when, when that emulsion is wet for any extended period of time, it just gets soft and gooey. 
Hmm. And if it's allowed to dry on its own, it's fixed together permanently. We can't, like, wet it again and say, well, okay, I'll just pull it apart. Whatever it's stuck to will, will, will be pulled apart, and then you remove that portion of an image or data, et cetera. So the key during emergencies is to keep it wet. Hmm. Like you have to put a line a box of a plastic bag, put them in there, and you have to even add some distilled water. Just keep them wet and refrigerate them, and then get them processed by somebody who knows how to process them uh, properly. We actually use Kodak uh, equipment for the developing of x-rays and microfilm and reprocess all of these films uh, in accordance with you know the original methods, except we just don't use as many chemicals since they're already developed. We use the Kodak finishing chemicals, and it really resets the emulsion. And hmm. this is a case where you're actually recovering it. In, in many cases, they're like new again. Wow. Um, and the final category is your magnetic media. Similar to uh, our film type stuff, but it's more magnetic. And there again, we don't want it to dry. Just keep them wet and uh, um, refrigerated. Get them to us, and there's a, a variety of ways we can uh, recover magnetic media, such as videotapes, computer LTO tapes, and we process those on different types of equipment as well. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, because I I've heard it. You know, talked about in in conferences before that this whole sense of you go from it, it really the paper goes from frozen, uh, obviously from wet to frozen to dry, and is is that right. just is that just having spent years trying to figure out how to do that, or is is that a science? I mean, is there a science to that that you guys picked up and and created the capability of making that happen in what you call your chambers? Uh, you, you bring up a real good point. It's a mixture of science and a skill set. Hmm. Not to get overly technical in it, but the science has actually been around. It's how they freeze-dry food. You know, uh, you, you basically, uh, the, the technical term is sublimation of, of, of water out of the document, meaning when you freeze it, you're removing the moisture as a gas, not a liquid molecule through water evaporation. Hmm. And a gas molecule is small, so when it leaves the paper, although it's a slower process, leaves the paper without hurting the paper. It's the same as the moment you froze it, whereas the dehumidification, it's a big water droplet, and that's what causes the paper to, uh, hmm. to expand. What makes our equipment unique is we've adapted it for the paper industry. Right. So the time cycles and so forth um, are designed strictly for paper. We have all kinds of monitors that go in the paper inside of the freeze-dry chamber to tell us the temperature of the paper. So when it goes from like minus 30 degrees, let's say, up to 70 degrees, well, we know that there's not much moisture left. And it's about the time we need to start checking each individual box. Hmm. If you don't, I, don't, I call it like not, not like making, baking a thousand cakes. You don't put a thousand cakes in the oven and in 30 minutes they all come out. These all come out at different times because each one may be more, more wet or more dry than another or located in a different area of the chamber. So every single one is individually inspected. That's the skill. So mm. you've got the science and how you build your equipment. The skill is the person that manages it. Right. The people that like doing repeat business with us is because we pay attention. And, and you, uh, let's say, for example, if you wanted to save some money, you could leave everything in the chamber longer over-dry them, so to speak, and then, okay, I didn't have to go in and check them as often. I bring them out, but when you over-dry things, you deteriorate the paper because you dried them too far, and even though you 
you reacclimate them and get moisture in them, you've already done some damage. It's what they call desiccating of paper. Uh, sure, it saves you some money. You move things faster, but you'll actually see a browning or yellowing of the paper, and it becomes brittle. You can tell it got over-dried. Hmm. And some of our competitors from time to time have done that. So people that have repeat incidents, they know who they would tend to you know, have consistent quality coming uh, back from. Hmm. So there is a noticeable difference from uh, time to time. All right. So can you give us an example of a typical recovery? Let, let's let say a, a company, say in a flood situation or a hurricane situation, gets a, a whole bunch of paper, um, you know, completely soaked. And um, walk me through the disaster response that involves, let, let's just do it with paper just for the sake of, of everybody understanding that process. So paper soaked, they call you. What happens? What's the process? You get the phone call, and we respond to the event, you know, in hours, basically. So one of our regional response centers, for example, would respond. I would respond later than uh, uh, to manage it. So once we're on the site, we collaborate with the client to assess the situation, confirm the gravity of the situation, the magnitude, and confirm, you know, what the scope of work is. So once we do that, then the first thing we want to do is mitigate any further damage to the documents meaning do we have to remove water or mud from the area? How do we get access to it? We need a safe work area. Uh, we need to set up security to protect the documents and only allow appropriate people to have access to the documents where needed. So commercial office building, for example, uh, if you have a lot of contractors running around the building, you want to make sure they're not going to be coming around where the documents are. So right. that's a, an right. example wouldn't be self-evident. The next thing we want to do is develop an inventory plan with the customer that we mutually agree upon. What data do they need? What data do we need? And sometimes we're going to recover data that they don't think they need. <laughs> that right. We know later on they're going to start asking about. Right, right. So, so we get a, a good information um, plan for inventory, and then we start our inventory process. And then as soon as possible, then we try to get the boxes inventoried, Sometimes you, you can't get the boxes as fast as you want into a refrigerated truck, so you have to plastic line the boxes so that while you're staging for the inventory, the boxes don't get soft and start collapsing, you know, either now or during shipment. Um, but once you've got your inventory and then you audit your inventory to confirm everything is correct, you get it on a refrigerated truck right there at the site, accumulate your shipment, and then transportation normally is uh, direct and dedicated to our facility. Uh, team drivers, no overnight stays for security reasons. Primary reason for that is about 25% of thefts are random thefts at either truck stops or overnight parks where somebody just thinks the trailer has something valuable. So you want to, and they don't, they're not sure. Right. <laughs> so you, you don't want to be part of that. So you just take it all the way to our facility. Uh, and by the way, we would have put a U.S. Customs high security seal on the trailer door and then, of course, when we receive it, we verify the security seal and receive it. That's a simplified version, <clears throat> whether it's you know small, medium, or large. That tends to be the things we would like to have accomplished. Right. So it, it sounds to me like 
um, what what often happens is uh, a flood happens, all hell breaks loose, um, contractors are in, electricians are in, and what what all of a sudden the client realizes is that oh my gosh, I've got paper here that has incredibly valuable stuff, and then it's at that point it's you start that process of helping them really solidify what's there, how to get it, and and get it into the uh, recovery process, but um, the the um, as I, I hear you describe that, it's it's really going back to breathing. <laughs> is you come in and you say this is this is the steps we have to take. It's um, it's demanding that there is a process that happens in a disaster in order to get the optimal result. Yeah, you're exactly right. And here we're talking about two types of incidents. You could have it at the records center, or it could be at the client you know, records. Right. Uh, manager for a large company. Right. Um, the thing that I see that's different sometimes is um, how fast can you get them out? And what we always try to tell everybody is to slow down, take that deep breath. Mm. The disaster has occurred. Let's manage it properly. Let's not just make speed for the sake of speed so we can brag on how fast things got out of the building. And then you're trying to find documents and information and you know it's not as accurate as you want it to be. Mm. And how many times we've had that kind of pressure you know, that everybody wants to be the expert on how fast you can get something out of the building. But then once it's out of the building, it's always, well, how do we find this information? Or how about those, right. you know, boxes for this client? So we always try to get them the, you can only move as fast as you can inventory and you just live with it. Yeah. <laughs> so you can gear up your inventory system. You can go 24-7 if you want, but don't, you know, move anything until Right. That's cool. So you've been involved pretty closely with some pretty high level projects over the years. Uh, can, can you tell me in brief, because um, we, we could take all day with this, I expect, but can you tell me in brief what a couple of your, your favorite ones were, not necessarily because of the severity of the situation, but the, you know, the, the role you played in it? Uh, a couple of fun ones, but one, and then one or a couple that are marked as, um, uh, much notoriety that, that I, I, I liked. But we recently did quite a few truckload documents for the FBI that were top, top secret. Uh, so we can't talk about that one all that much. But, you know, hey, we're glad that we did it. Uh, but we also restored all of the personal effects for passengers out of every major uh, airplane crash in the U.S. So there's a lot of paper documents that were in different condition on that. So think of a miracle on the Hudson, uh, U.S. Air uh, and recovered a lot of paper documents and hard drives and so forth out of that. Really? But the other one, cool. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But the ones that actually, I think, uh, gave me a lot of satisfaction was helping a lot of record storage companies during Sandy and Irene for their customers that had documents and media affected and didn't know who to turn to. Hmm. And there we partnered with the record storage companies to help their customers pack out everything, do all the work, and then actually bill it through the record storage company. And what we found out was many people, you know, really didn't know who to turn to. Um, they certainly know who to turn to to store their records or, you know, things of that nature. But the, the recovery of it was something they were really at a loss on. Hmm. So we found that it really helped, uh, you know, REM service companies provide a valuable service and bond their customers closer to them and at the same time make, make a, a profit. And there you're helping people that didn't know where to turn um, that was uh, very gratifying. 
Oh, that's that's very cool. It's especially because that that was obviously a very significant. Those Sandy and Irene were both pretty significant events um, that yeah. you know had had a whole lot of people scratching their heads. So I, I can only imagine your your role in that was pretty cool. So you you talk about partnering with record centers. Um, with their clients do you guys have a process for that is that something you actively engage so do you become partners with record centers is that give me just a brief explanation of that well this is what we have actually expanded upon here over the last few years to formalize it as a you know a business partner program hmm. and as a business partner we we have to find people that like the idea and the concept and it's a uh, you know, a, a win-win on both parts where we help them help their customers right. and educate both parts about it. Because what I found is many record storage companies, employees, aren't that knowledgeable about, you know, document recovery. Right. Know everything there is right. about, you know, storage, but only a few veterans within the companies are really knowledgeable about the recovery aspect. But the people that are on the front lines and middle management um, really aren't all that knowledgeable to what they should do with their records, obviously. And if the customers are calling in, they're equally not well-versed. They don't have the vocabulary. Yeah. And I'm not trying to find criticism with them that they haven't found the need to. They didn't think it was necessary. Right. And that's what Irene and Sandy really taught me was their customers didn't know. And the reason they didn't know is it's not something they would normally talk about. They don't see it as a vital service. But Irene and Sandy brought to the forefront you know, the disasters can happen to anybody. You yeah. know, it doesn't make a difference where you are. Therefore, I think it's important that the storage companies have it as a part of their service. It doesn't have to be talked about it all the time, but many other people should know, yes, you can turn to them for this vital service. And, uh, for example, I had a client that had a, a burned-down record center in Dubai, and we went there to make sure that the recovery was was done properly, uh, nothing got disposed of improperly, and so forth. There's a lot of different things we do to uh, support uh, our clients. Yeah, that's that's very cool. So coming out of that, um, you know, you you've obviously built a way for record storage companies or uh, related rim companies who have uh, you know those client connections. Uh, they, the the question before that might be. Um, when these things happen and the, the end user client of a record center, let's say, calls the record center and says, help, I've just had a flood, what's, and I, I think you might have answered this question earlier in the call, but I just want to come at it a little bit differently, but what, what should a record center besides, you know, making a secondary call to you or having you as a partner, but how should a record center or a shredding company, if they're involved in this, how can they respond immediately? Uh, what's the first thing or what's the first set of things they should do when a client calls them in a disaster like that? Uh, well, previous to that, they should have aligned themselves with somebody they're comfortable with. So right. they have something in place, right? Uh, if they have that in place, then they would be able to turn to their partner and say, yes, we can take care of it. But what we found was with some record storage companies, sometimes they can go and pack out the wet documents. But there's cases they don't want to when you're dealing with hazardous materials, yeah. mold, slime, slippery surfaces. They're, they're putting their employees at, at harm's way under conditions they're not used to. Right. That's when you can turn key to somebody you trust um, to take care of that. The other thing Irene and uh, Sandy taught us was that Many records companies, room service companies, had enterprise contracts with their clients. Well, well, 
many people know of BMS, but not everybody has a contract with us, obviously. So it, it allows then for the contracting to be easy when we have a pre-established agreement with the rim service company. They've got an agreement with their client, then the paperwork's a piece of cake. Uh, we can respond on their behalf, go get the work done, protect their employees, and uh, help their customer and, not, and make a profit. Hmm, that's very cool. So basically, just so I'm understanding that, you're suggesting that if a record center has a previously scheduled um, partnership with you, but they're also in their contracts with their clients, uh, actually documenting, say, in their Schedule A's or something, what the cost of recovery will be, it just becomes a piece of their contract then. It becomes quite easy, as opposed to a big extra thing. Yeah, and it, well, and even if you don't have the known cost, if you at least have the service in there, maybe the ranges and so forth, then you can document what cost is. Right. But having the service in there allows it to be an eligible service, and you just need to figure out the range of the cost right. based on the on the unique circumstances. So on every contract renewal, you know, I would just add it as a, and we have all the paperwork, we have the training, the education, hmm. so they can just add this as a normal part of their work. You know, just and just say, hey, just in case anything ever happens, you know, this is a part of it, and we can you know help respond. You kind of downplay it at the you know service contract signing, but boy, it pays big dividends down the road you help your customers in their times of need that's 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 i i've never actually considered it that way i mean i i i'd heard about the um the intersection that that you know or the relationship that you can build in advance with with a company like yours but i didn't i it never even dawned i mean i've done this for years that it makes a whole lot of sense for a record center to actually add that into their contract renewals or even their initial contracts with clients so disaster recovery is a part of the initial contract i love that 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 was worth the price of admission right there <laughs> well, wonderful yeah um so backing up even from there and you're in the all the experience you've had with all the disasters you've seen and you're a pro at this where are so many businesses negligent or even ignorant about um what it, they need when it comes to preparedness and i'm talking about your rank and file company who has, you know stores tapes and media and those kind of things not even just your record center i think record centers in general or media vaults are a little more astute about this um but what what's the mistake that many are making or where are they negligent so you've got a chance to grab us and shake us a little bit here with what we need to know based on all you've learned over the years what what is it that we're missing I'd break that down to two areas. One's your basic planning process, and the other one is in, in anticipation of a, a hurricane or area-wide you know, disaster coming your way. So in the planning process, what, what I, I feel is many have a fundamental plan, mm -hmm. but what I don't think they have is a key team of people empowered to act during a disaster. Hmm. And, and they've given them empowerment to make decisions without having to ask for permission to make decisions. And this could be at the regional level or the national level. So when a disaster does strike, that key team is making decisions. They're taking actions. However, what I see is oftentimes they're still talking to senior management about assessment, review, um, and you have inaction and you're not moving forward. Hmm. And to me, fast decisions will result in lower costs. Right. That the, the second part of that is that they do not have an agreement with a disaster response company 
and in particular, a document recovery company and somebody that they're comfortable with, they've talked to in advance, and they have a relationship one. Yeah. So that's area one, basic planning. And the second part is everybody's watching the news. They see the hurricane tracking report, for example. And what are most people doing? They're waiting to see where landfall is going to be. Well, how bad is it going to be? And again, it's procrastination and indecision. I know of REM service companies that want generators in case the local power goes out, but they wait until the last minute, and then they complain that it takes four or five days to get a generator because we have to bring it in from three or four states away because everybody else made decisions. Right. So you have to spend money prior to landfall of a hurricane or the floodwaters coming up to your door. I know of some companies that have moved documents off of the first and second row of shelving in advance of, of an event or a defensive measure. Hmm. Or in the case of up in Seattle, they were worried about a dam breaking months ahead of time. People spent money to, to move boxes out just in case. So that's being proactive and not uh, being indecisive. Yeah, well, that's uh, good. One record storage company after Sandy said, get human resources involved uh, so that employees have what they need, such as credit cards, uh, cell phone uh, uh credit cards so they could use it on their cell phones or even cell phones, cell phones that can make long distance calls. Uh, you don't think about that the team you want to respond has to have all the tools. Make sure you put fuel in your trucks, top them off. So there's a lot of things they can do that are that to be proactive before an incident hits your doorstep. Yeah, and in, in uh, I think it was Stephen Covey's book that uh, important but not urgent stuff always seems to get left to the uh, – you know, left to the um, last minute. <laughs> I mean, it, it's yeah. it, it's a, yeah. a condition of being human, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and what, if they really want to get some good planning, they really should make like a, just a little casual decision tree and put a dates on it, like two, a week in advance of an event. So if you thought a hurricane or whatever was going to hit your door, what would you do a week ahead of time? And list those decisions out. And when you're watching the hurricane and say, well, it is going to be landfall. I'm going to be forced to make decisions because that's what my decision tree says rather than having an option. Otherwise, people are going to do exactly what you said. They're going to wait until the 11th hour. And then you can't get all of those things done because you ran out of time. And and then uh, inevitably the disaster is bigger. The uh, the outcomes are more expensive. The recovery costs more. All of that stuff. So, I I, I think what we're doing today is reminding people. And as hard as it is, because it goes against our our very nature, which is we we don't want to deal with that stuff. You're it sounds to me like you're saying you know. Um, shake your head a little bit and get this stuff prepared because when you're prepared, you can respond effectively. Make it real. Make it like when you were in school and you had a fire drill, you had to go do it. Hmm. Make the emergency, make them real. Make your employees participate in it. Take some, you know, tabletop exercises, you know, force yourself to do things, spend the hours and the money and the dollars necessary to make it work. Even though senior management, you know, everybody's under budget, but, your business interruption and lost customers will be many times more than a small amount of time and energy that uh, pre-planning and living a real exercise uh, can pay benefits on. Well, Mark, I, I'm sure we could talk at, at length about all of this, but we've uh, we've we've gone through more than 30 minutes, and I, I really appreciate your perspective on it. I really 
I, I know you've been at this such a long time and you've seen so many different things. So uh, thank you for sharing uh, your story, a little bit about what you've done, and, and as well some, some really important and valuable advice and direction for us on the call today. Any famous last words? Oh, I guess the other thing, thing I could think of is I saw two quotes. One was from Mr. Rogers. said, when I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You always find people who are helping. I say in disasters, we think of the Red Cross. So find a document recovery company that can truly help you before, during, and after the disaster. You can hire anyone to show up, but finding helpers is harder. The last quote is from the words of Elvis Presley in his last press conference. I hope I haven't bored you. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it, you have not bored us, and I appreciate all your wisdom and advice. And uh, Mark, thanks again for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Now, that was good. Uh, there's a lot to think about as it relates to disaster recovery planning for both you and for your clients. And um, I, I got to say, special thanks to Mark for joining us, for sharing his story, but even more so helping us to think more clearly about how to prepare for and be ready for the disasters. I, I, I think it's really cool as I, I think about what we just talked about. Um, someone who has had so much experience, that ability to be able to go into situations and, and calmly uh, figure out what to do next and how to solve this problem that's sitting in front of him. And I, and I appreciated the fact that he said he actually feels the nervousness in it, but he knows how to bring sort of that order to the chaos that exists. So I'm really grateful to Mark for joining us and sharing that with us today. And I want to thank you for joining us as well and listening to the show. I appreciate you. I appreciate your presence on the show. It's hard to believe we've done 161 of these shows so far. And uh, without you being here, uh, this wouldn't happen. Finally, I want to thank our official sponsors, O'Neill Software. I was noticing their latest handheld device, the Motorola ES400. I actually picked it up when I was at the conference uh, about a month ago. This amazingly small handheld is big enough for RS Mobile, O'Neill's mobile software application, but small enough for your pocket. This device is Motorola's smallest enterprise digital assistant, so be sure to check out another leading product provided by the RIM industry software leader, O'Neill Software. And you can do so at O'NeillSoft.com. That's it for now. We'll talk to you next week. We are out of here. Thanks for joining us on the Rim Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others. Our website is www.rimproreport.com. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Inc. Join us again soon.